Today on More Than a Test, we have Patricia Pate. She is a program manager at SEAL. SEAL stands for Sobrado Early Academic Language. She's gonna to talk to us a lot about the inter initiatives they've led around dual language and bilingual education in California. She'll talk about her experience as an educator, as a leader of educators, and all the different ways that we can be better supporting students who are learning, living, and speaking in more than one language. Patricia, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here with you, Laura. Um, I've got to be honest, I was talking with a, my colleague who works really um, closely with our Spanish product. And when she saw that you were our guest today, she was like, here are five questions you have to ask her for me. So we're really excited to talk to you about bilingual education, bilingual literacy, um, and just everything that you know and do. So again, thank you for being here. Excellent. Thank you. I look forward to the questions. <laughs> so you're here because we, um, you know, we connected through the Reading League um, because you're a program manager at SEAL. Will you go ahead and tell people who don't know what SEAL is and, and what your role looks like? Yeah. So I work for an organization. It's a nonprofit called SEAL, Sobrato Early Academic Language. We're based out of California, specifically um, work in the Bay areas where we're um you know, our home site. However, we are across the state working um, in different districts, working with different partners, really to support and advocate for all English learners um, in California. We partner with districts. So it's actually like a three-prong approach where we're working not only um, at the district level, but we also do a lot of research and advocacy. And then we also um you know, work with policy and how we can get our partners to really um, uplift and support the needs of English learners. So it's really this sort of comprehensive approach that really supports this sort of long-term systemic changes. Okay. And comprehensive is, is a lovely way to put it. And multi-pronged was what I was thinking, but it's a, it's a lot of things, right? Because you're talking about schools, you're talking about districts, you're also talking about policy. When you think about what you actually focus on, what, what is your main area of focus? So my main work uh, area of focus has really been working with our partners, um, specifically early learning as well as elementary. We are PK through sixth grade model. Um, initially, we started really just with PK through third grade um, because our whole emphasis was on uplifting, again, the needs of English learners, supporting oral language development, providing them with access to the curriculum, science, social studies based, all of that great stuff. Um, but such good things were happening in those grades that at the elementary systems, typically they go through fifth or sixth grade. And so by the time fourth grade teachers and fifth grade teachers were getting these children who had been, you know, involved um, in classrooms where they were implementing our SEAL model, they're like, what about us? Like these kids are super advanced. How can we continue to support their growth and development? And so um, due to uh, demand, we uh, launched our fourth or sixth grade model too. And so now we are pre-K through um, sixth grade and there's talk about middle school and high school, but, you know, taking on a little bit at a time. So hopefully in the future, we'll um, be all the way through high school. Okay. So let's talk about, so right now you're, you're expanding because there's a need for it. So Absolutely. when you say, you know, our model was successful, explain it to someone else. Like what's the model that you created in, in pre-K three and what were the results that make you say it was successful? Yeah. So, um, the, 
So the Sprato family, I'll just kind of talk there. Um, it was a family in Silicon Valley who really were successful and wanted to give back to their community. So they reached out to a, a well-known researcher, Dr. Lori Olson, who has done tremendous work, um, both on long-term English learners, school reform, all of that stuff. And they really wanted to focus on English learners, specifically in the Silicon Valley where they were um, from, and just give back to them. And so Dr. Lori Olson, again, having done so much work and research on English learners, knew that, okay, it's not just about the Silicon Valley. We need to create a model that it's going to support everyone, ideally across uh, the the state, ideally across the nation. So she, you know, looked at the uh, research, uh, really looked at the National Literacy Panel and what it had said in terms of developing literacy for second language learners. You know, we've incorporated the NASA report, all of that stuff about what it really takes to support English learners in the classroom um, and created a model. It's a two-year program um, or model, I should say, that we come in and we work with teachers, um, providing really um, key modules that focus on specific things. First, oral language, um, you know, because that's the foundation for literacy. Then we focus on um, sort of like language functions and, and the language, you know, because they need academic language to talk about certain right. subjects. But then they also need those forms and functions, like how to compare and contrast, all of that stuff. Focus on designated ELD, how to, you know, all these wonderful rich scaffolds that can really make um, content accessible for children who are acquiring English at the same time. So it's use of visuals, use of graphic organizers, sentence frames, all of that great stuff that um, is proven to really support English learners and their development of language. Okay, so the program is two years and it's intended to be teacher facing with materials for students. Um, to support English language development. Well, I, what I'm hearing, and I think that this is a misconception for some people, is that I think sometimes, and, and tell me if you think I'm wrong, there, there's kind of like the swing towards English language development and the academic language is missing. And what I'm hearing is like, it's meant to be both, right? It's meant Absolutely. to be both. Yeah. And so our approach is um, we're curriculum agnostic. However, we do work with um, our partners and looking at what curriculum do they actually use? Um, looking at the standards, of course, is key for us. And then sort of blending it, um, you know, taking those two to create thematic uh, units that typically last anywhere from four to six weeks and really dive into the content, providing this immersive experience for children where they're surrounded um, with this language, with this content throughout the entire day. So how can we get books that are, quote, for language, you know, arts time related to the content during social studies, you know, and science, are there any connections that we can make too? So that it's not um, providing sort of these silos where children are, you know, learning about literacy for 40 minutes and then they're learning about science and then maybe they get social studies, but how can we make this really an immersive experience for children over a period of time where they can hear the language being repeated multiple ways and have that opportunity to, to just experience the content and, you know, become more in depth with that understanding. So it sounds like with your district and school partners, you're taking the teachers they have, the curriculum they have, and kind of giving like a power boost for English language learners of saying, right, instead of making ELD this like other thing that you do, it can be incorporated into everything you do if done well. 
And, Absolutely. And, and so one of the things that I heard you say is that it's been successful. Um, what, what does that look like? Is it that your partners come back or are kids developing language faster? Are they reading faster? Like, what have you noticed that that's really working in this? Um, I think just a lot of, we, you know, we do surveys. We do, um, uh, after each module, we work with the teachers, we ask them for feedback and so forth. There's an end of the year, um, survey that's also done for both teachers, administrators, um, a lot of work, um, outside, uh, studies have also been conducted on SEAL. Um, but it's just, you know, again, like, teachers' confidence. So we, we ask teachers about their level of confidence in actually working with English learners. We ask them about what um, progress they've seen. So, of course, language is, um, you know, through, through the roof in terms of what teachers are reporting. Um, they also look at, um, you know, standardized assessments that are also given and can see that children who have been part of the SEAL model actually either perform or outperform those who are in other um sites or similar classrooms that don't have our model in place. And so I know the goal was originally Silicon Valley, but now SEAL is used all over California. We're in throughout California, um, everywhere from Central Valley area down to Los Angeles and Long Beach, um, up north near um, Sacramento as well. And, you know, we're continuing to expand. I think we're looking at some partners out in Coachella. So um, lots, lots of growth happening. That's awesome. And when we talk about multilingual learners, are most of your the children that you end up, you know, like partnering in their districts, are they Spanish speakers or is it, I know California is incredibly diverse or is it like language learners from all over the world? Yeah, actually, I mean, uh, the majority, right? Because Spanish is, is so, um, you know, people who speak Spanish is so great in terms of numbers here in California. So majority are, but we do have, I know, in um, working with LAUSD, they have programs that are Korean, um, I want to say Arabic also, um, and Mandarin. So definitely um, lots of languages that are represented throughout our models. So one of the things that we hear a lot, um, we have a lot of partners at Amira that help us kind of with our Spanish product and our English product for English language learners. And I, and I, I think that what we hear is, is that there are a lot of misconceptions about English language learners and what they need to develop and and where they are. And I'm, I'm curious, have you had that experience with your teachers, with your district partners, as they kind of believe one thing and there's like a mindset shift they need in order to make this change? You know, I think it varies um, um, sort of where the location is. You know, sometimes we do encounter um, individuals who might have more of a deficit view of English learners and, you know, they can't speak English. And so then they don't know anything and this and that. And then we work with partners too, who are seeped in the research on English learners have dual language models already in place. And so they just like this uh, works so well for that environment. And then for those too, who may initially have a different perspective on who English learners are and what they bring to the table. Um, by the time they go through our two-year uh, model, they really, you know, come to know the research and see, you know, how these children perform in situations where there are scaffolds provided for them, where there is repetition, where they're allowed to use their home language to make connections. And so, you know, that that shift in mindset starts to happen. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about working with teachers over the course of two years that you get to see that progression um, in terms of growth on their end. And do you work with teachers personally in your role or not really? Absolutely. No, I'm on the ground, which is what I love about uh, SEAL. You know, leaving the classroom was something I hesitated to do. 
But being in classrooms, working with teachers, providing support, oftentimes we have what's called a summer bridge where it's more of an immersive, like everything that we've learned all year, let's, you know, go at it and try to implement as much as we can. And so I get to come in, model lessons for teachers. Um, and so I still get that touch of working with children and families and educators too, which I just love. Okay. And so for someone who isn't in California and doesn't have access to SEAL, when you think about this two-year, I mean, it's a lot that you're offering. What do you think would be the one thing, if you could give them one nugget of like, if you're working with English language learning students, you should definitely think about this, or this might be the one thing you're missing. What would you tell them? So I think it depends, right? If you're working with context, you're working in, but for those who may not have a bilingual program in place, um, I think just, um, recognizing that mindship, right? First and foremost, right? These are capable students. They've got a lot to bring to the table. And so um, really developing their oral language, providing those supports and scaffolds, visual supports, um, allowing them the opportunity to practice. So that English language development, really targeting it to their needs is key. Um, and then if you're working in a bilingual context, well, it's both, right? It's, it's continuing to develop that home language, making sure that they get access to this curriculum, to that rich language, um, not only in English, but also in Spanish. And we see that typically ha does happen in those dual language classrooms. The other thing I would want to say, uh, regardless of the context, but more so for those working in an English um, instructive classroom, is the partnering with families. I think that's really key in sending that message to them about uh, you know, how you support, continue to develop their home language at home. What you're doing is wonderful because that not only helps them to continue developing their home language, but also supports them in acquiring their English um, language as well. You know, we just had um, someone from the, the CEO of Digital Promise on, and the number one thing we were talking about stakeholders, and he said the fourth leg of the stool that people often forget is families, right? Like we talk about teachers, we talk about leaders, we talk about kids, and we often forget how important parents are. So I think, I think it's great that you said that. Um, to me, you know, one of the things that you said is that you also do, you know, political advocacy or, you know, advocacy in districts. And what I'm hearing is that from Seal, you, you all kind of would promote a bilingual model as opposed to English for, or English only. Is that, is that true that we kind of see bilingual models are more successful for English learners or tell me, tell me more about what you're thinking there and, and what does your advocacy look like? Yeah, the research definitely shows um, whenever you can provide a bilingual setting for children, they flourish. Um, it's It's been proven. Um, so we would definitely advocate for that. However, we know that you know, our nation, California, is so diverse. And sometimes you might have more than 20 languages represented at one school site, right? So in those instances, maybe you don't have the population to truly pull off a bilingual setting that's targeting one particular language, or you might not necessarily have the staff that are themselves bilingual. And so in that sense, then it's just, again, advocating uh, for this um, sort of notion of valuing and nurturing home language development in addition to English. So whatever I'm doing in my classroom um, that's in English, how can I continue to support their home language? You know, might be resources, providing books in children's home languages, partnering again with families, partner, uh, parent workshops, et cetera, that'll continue to uplift that message about the importance of multilingualism um, in our nation. So I was recently in New York and to your point about resources and the staffing, I was in a school that has a large Polish population that they hadn't had before. And so they couldn't afford a, a full teacher for Polish, but they could afford like someone for a part, part of the day to come in and work with students. 
And I think what I'm hearing you say is even if you can't do a full bilingual program, there is a, a huge value in promoting some of their home language and being able to do some of that at school. Is that is that true? Definitely, definitely. I think like the whole message that we want to send not only to our students, to our community, to our families is the richness, the, the benefits of being bilingual. I mean, for too long, we were in sort of this English only kind of like narrowed view of what um what was success um, supposed to be like if I can attain English? But that might have meant like I'm losing my home language at the same time. And so, you know, that was, I would say, a very backwards way of thinking. And research has proven now that, um, you know, there there aren't, you know, you know, speaking your home language doesn't impact negatively um, your ability to acquire English. And so why not develop both? Right. That's the beauty of that. You know, um, it's it's great to hear that. And I, and I think you're 100% right. And I've seen the research. And I actually used to teach bilingual kindergarten. But the way that I used to describe this to people, and I still do, is when I showed up on my classroom, um, that was, you know, 50% in Spanish, like 50, it was true bilingual, 50% Spanish, 50% in English. The resources I got for English were like a stack of 20 books. It was, it was huge, right? I had like, it was all over my desk. And the resources I had for Spanish... We're, not, we're like a fraction, maybe 10%, right? Most of most of my curriculum didn't come in both languages. Most of my materials didn't come in both languages. And, and I think that this is a reality that still persists. Is that what your teachers are saying? Is that still true? Unfortunately, it still is. We're getting better. I know that when I was in the classroom too, I experienced the same things that you did, Laura, or if I did have the curriculum that was translated, it was just directly translated from English um, but not necessarily thinking about the language and what that translation would actually uh, be in, if a native speaker were to translate it. So I think that's definitely still the case, which is why sometimes, um, you know, teachers are hesitant to enter the bilingual field, knowing that it might be this extra work and so forth. But again, with collaboration, um, you know, as curriculum, like as we get our voices out there and talk about the need for multilingual um, resources and supports, it's getting better. And so I really have faith that um, soon teachers will have the resources that, that they need, which will at least make it easier in terms of planning and finding those materials when um, they need to. Right. And I, I think you're hitting on, you, you know, you're saying that teachers are, you know, hesitant, even if they are bilingual to enter that field. But, you know, I work at Amira and we have our product works in Spanish and in English. But we were like, it wasn't an easy step into Spanish. We were nervous. We were, could we do it right? Can we hire all the right people? And so I'm curious, like, what advice would you give to a product like Amira that's either initially stepping into Spanish or, you know, our Spanish product is coming behind our English product. We want to offer both, but we, it's, it's, it's hard, right? So I'm, I'm curious what advice you would have based on your experience. I think I would go out into the field, right? I would um, talk to teachers that are working in those settings, connect with families too, like all the stakeholders. Uh, what is it that that they're looking for? What, um, you know, I, I'm not 100% on all the text that you use. I know it's like computer-based and so forth, but like are the, the, the texts that children are reading, are they reflective of their experiences? Um, and, and how can you, you know, really look at the home language in in its authenticity um, as opposed to kind of, again, thinking first English and then how can we mirror that into Spanish? Yeah, I think I think that's really good advice. And I think the authentic text piece is really important. Um, we always think things like Google Translate are going to work and then it's like nowhere close. And, and so we've yeah. been really lucky and fortunate to have authors from other countries 
um, who are willing to, to partner with us, but it, it's not easy. And so I appreciate you kind of pointing that out. Um, and, and I think also teaching, you know, especially early literacy in English and Spanish look a little bit different. I know we were both at the Science of Reading um, conference with the Reading League. And I'm just curious, you know, do, are you seeing everything from Science of Reading translate from English to Spanish? Or, or what do you think is a little bit different there? Um, well, you know, the research shows that it, children do learn in the same way in their home language. So if you're reading in English or you're reading in Spanish, but that's your home language, then uh, all those elements, uh, you know, the language comprehension, word recognition skills and so forth are the same. However, when you're learning in a different language, then uh, that's when some modifications or, or key pieces need to be elevated too. So um, I think in terms of uh, learning to read in Spanish, when that's your home language, then, you know, the science of reading is there, right? Building children's vocabulary, focusing on uh, those decoding, sight recognition, et cetera, um, are very similar. Awesome. That's great to hear. And I, and I think, you know, the, it's, it's really important because, again, there's all of these resources for science of reading in English. <laughs> Absolutely. And so that's, it's another area we need to catch up and make sure all of that is available and appreciated in Spanish. So thanks for pointing that out. Um, when you look at the advocacy, you know, we talked a lot about what you're doing in classrooms, this two-year program and all the success that you've had and how you're, you're going out to sixth grade and possibly further into middle school. Um, but again, back to the, like the advocacy piece, what are some of the things that you're advocating for in early literacy through SEAL? Um, through SEAL, I think we're, you know, really partnering with um, NCL, so the National uh, Committee for Effective Literacy, and really thinking about, okay, so most teachers, um, regardless of whether they're in an English setting or a bilingual setting, are being, um, you know, the, the science of reading movement, right, is hitting them, and they're getting sort of this... Uh, I wouldn't say one-sided, but they're getting this perspective that's really based on monolingual learners. And so SEAL is really partnering with NCL to uplift um, the needs for English learners of ensuring that if they are in an English-only setting, the need for vocabulary, the need for oral language, building um, children's home language, English language development is key. And those are pieces that aren't on that reading rope that we just want to make sure are um, you know, ideally, I think we would create a different graphic that represents all of those key pieces at once, because what's happening right now is teachers are getting information of the science of reading, really focusing on um, the simple view of reading as well as the reading rope. But then they're having to go somewhere else to really think about, OK, well, how does this impact my English learners and um, you know, what is it that I need to do? So rather than having to go to a separate location, how beautiful would it be if it was all there in one place for them? So is there a place right now to go for one place or still not yet? And that's what you're working on. Uh, well, the again, the National um, this Committee for Effective Literacy has lots of resources. There is a comprehensive um, literacy approach, lots of papers there that help to support um you know, this, this notion of how, of engaging with English learners and the science of reading, um, you know, there is some criticism on it. And I'll be honest, typically the science of reading initially when it started focused a lot on phonics and decoding, and that was the push. So what was happening in classrooms is that we were seeing um, teachers being told, hey, you really need to focus on that phonics and decoding, you know, and sometimes spending like 40 to 60 minutes of instruction on that, which we know not all students need. 
And that might not be the best approach, right? Because if you have that amount of time, um, just focusing devoted to these particular skills, that's time that's being taken out of your history, out of your math, out of your social studies, you know? And so how can we really fold those two together in teaching um, these, you know, foundational skills within the context? That makes sense. And I think that's really helpful. I'll definitely be checking out the NCEL um, website later. So thank you for that. Um, okay. So the, obviously everything you're doing at SEAL is really important. I think that there are lots of people listening, thinking, oh my gosh, these are the resources that I need for my own classroom. Uh, but you mentioned that it wasn't easy for you to, to leave the classroom to do this role. So let's talk a little bit about that. So when you started your teaching career, you started where and what were you teaching? So I taught in a bilingual setting, um, Santa Clara school was Scotland. I think I can say the night, um, Santa Clara unified. Um, and initially I graduated, um, from college and wanted to take a year off to kind of just figure out and immerse myself in, um, teaching. So I became a paraprofessional, but that was the time when teachers, I mean, they still are, um, but we were a 20 to one ratio at that time. And so there was a need not only for teachers, but for bilingual teachers. So my district asked me, Hey, there's this opportunity for you to kind of jump into the classroom, get your credential, you know, working at, uh, uh um, in the evening, going to classes and then working during the day. And so I just kind of took that leap of faith and did it. And it was the best thing for me. Um, so I was in um, the classroom for about six years. Uh, as part of our district, I was also trained in a professional development called GLAD, Guided Language Acquisition Design, um, similar to SEAL in that it's about strategies that really uplift and support the needs of English learners. So I became a district trainer at that time, um, still in the classroom, but then kind of have this other hat that I was wearing. Uh, so I did that for a few years and then the opportunity came to um, leave the classroom and become an independent consultant with my colleague. So I did it. <laughs> um, I left and did that for a few years as, as I was, um, you know, not necessarily in a specific classroom. Uh, my old, uh, gosh, she was the director for, I think, um, education or something at our district went to Stanford University and they needed um you know, people who could support their teacher candidates, especially again, bilingual candidates. So she asked if I would be a university supervisor, which of course I jumped on that. Um, and then as I was still, you know, doing the GLAD and the, the supervision piece, the opportunity came to then go to SEAL and I've been there ever since. So I'm going on 20 years now, officially working with the organization. Um, so excited to, uh, you know, that that's my journey and still continuing to love what I do. What I love about your journey is that it's, it feels, feels like every single time it's just been like the step to help one more person, right? Like you started just wanting to be a paraprofessional helping a teacher. And then it was like, well, actually we need you to teach <laughs> and, and teach multilingual learners or, or bilingual learners. And you're like, okay, I'll do that. And then it was like, okay, we also need you to coach teachers. And we also need you to help you know, students in, in college at Stanford. And I just love that. Like, it was like the calling just kept coming for you and you just kind of kept saying, yes, I'll help one more group of people. And I think that's really neat. Um, one of the things really quickly that you mentioned was that it was during the 20 to one ratio. Do you mean it was during when I know at one point California had a mandate where you couldn't have 
like class sizes past a, a certain size and there was a huge teacher shortage. Is that, is that what you're talking about? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So they needed teachers during that time, especially bilingual teachers. Um, and so, yeah, my first class, I had 20, 20 students, which was lovely. <laughs> um, and I was saddened when, you know, we went, we, we got rid of that. I think we need to go back. Even lower numbers would be great so that we could really meet the needs uh, and be responsive to our students. I think a lot of people really, I think a lot of teachers, I know as, when I was a teacher, if you would just have given me a smaller class, I could have done so much more, right? I know I, at one point I had a kindergarten class with 36 children in it and was just, you know, there's a, a part of that that's just like management, right? Um, but I know in California, this this policy that you're talking about had some sort of a kind of multifacets to it in that, like you said, they were like, there was a teacher shortage. You couldn't get enough teachers to dwindle the class sizes to what they needed to be. And I wonder, um, do you ever see this in, you know, policy for ELD, for English language development, where the idea is good, but the implementation or like what it actually takes to get it done is somewhat difficult? Have you have you had that experience in any of the policies that you've been um, a part of? I think just with everything, um, the amount of time that teachers need to implement and take something, you know, and do it well, right? There's that learning stage, that that curve that you go through in order to become proficient. So like the ELA, ELD framework that came out has wonderful resources um, for teachers. However, it's thick, it's dense. And without like really having that time to dive into it and make sense out of it with your colleagues, then you know, it just ends up being a book on your bookshelf that doesn't really get looked at. So people might go to it for specific reasons. I was just in a, at a conference um, last week and uh, they were diving into it again. And I'm like, why aren't teachers, you know, using this um, if it can make such a huge difference? But again, it's just the time, the time that teachers are needing. And now with the science of reading movement and so many teachers, um, you know, having to learn right? How to um, teach reading. Like there's all this other stuff that's coming their way. And then I got to still keep everything else that was on my plate going. So it just becomes a real juggling act that um, again, requires time, requires coaching and support. And if you don't have that, then it's easy for those balls to start getting dropped. Yeah. Um, I, th I think that you've hit on something that I think is, is hard for everyone. Um, we do teacher training at the beginning of the year. And I feel like what we hear every single year is, well, we've got 27 minutes <laughs> in our one day of PD for you to get things to teachers. So I, I think that really speaks to the importance of why the SEAL program is two years, right? Is that understanding of how much teachers need time and, and the ability to learn. Okay, so you were teaching and then you went and, and you became GLAD trained. Right now, when you think about the biggest difference between being a teacher and a teacher coach, what would you say is the biggest difference? I think just... Um... Being able to actually like, so initially I was like, oh, I'm going to miss the kids, right? Like working with them. Um, but in this sense, I'm still touching them, right? I'm still um, having impact on them, but I'm doing it in a different way through multiple educators. So sometimes I'll be in trainings where I have 30 teachers. Well, each of those 30 teachers has at least 20 children in their classroom. And so that ripple effect of the impact that you can actually have. Um, it's hard to sometimes think about it on your day to day, you know, as you're working and, you know, working late hours and so forth. But when you sit back and actually realize and hear from the voices of the teachers and families, how they're being impacted by our program, it just, you know, makes everything, um, so much easier to, you know, continue moving forward with. And it sounds like you get to impact like a lot of, like, it sounds like you interact with a lot of teachers. 
something we hear from principals a lot, especially around science of reading, is that it's hard. Teachers are so busy, they're overwhelmed, and it can be hard to get them to change. Can you think of a teacher that you had a struggle to get them to kind of embrace change? And, and how did you overcome that? I think a lot of times, well, actually, we probably have one in every training that we deliver, right? Like I've already had this training or like I, I've been teaching for 15 years. I know how to do this, you know, my way, et cetera. And I think that the important thing is just to recognize where they're at. You know, if you come off also being defensive and like, oh, you're wrong and I'm right. It's just, they're just, you know, you're not going to win, right? There's just going to be this um, ongoing battle, but really like recognizing listening to them, hearing their concerns and voices and just saying, okay, I hear you. And then, you know, try to move them just a little bit forward each time. And we've had so many teachers who initially start out like with their arms crossed and like, I don't want to be there. My principal's forcing me to be here, et cetera. Um, but by the time we have our, you know, final module and we, you know, have sort of a celebration of their SEAL journey, you know, they're like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> like, this was such a great experience for me. My teaching has transformed. Once again, I'm like inspired to be, um, you know, to do what I love and, and continue working and helping children. And I think that those sometimes, like the ones who are with you all along, it's great. And you love connecting with them. But those that, you know, are kind of a challenge initially, but then come around, I think also um, keeps you going and motivated to, to ensure that those children who initially had that teacher now have a different um, you know, professional working with them. All right, let's do a little bit of a reality check because I'm sure there is a teacher who is listening right now and thinking, I want to have the ripple effect, right? 30 teachers, 20 kids, that's 600 kids I could impact. I want to do that. Tell us the hardest part about your job. I think same thing applies in terms of time, right? And and um, knowing that you have these commitments that you have to deliver um, professional development to, to trainers, staying abreast on what's current and what else we can continue to infuse, um, being responsive to teachers too. So what's happening in this um, program might be slightly different from this program, different curriculum that's being used. And so it's just kind of keeping everything straight on um on how to best make the model fit for them. Okay. So it can be overwhelming, but in the end we get it done and it's still powerful. It's true. Nothing in education is not overwhelmed, right? Everyone's got a little bit of overwhelm. So that makes sense. Um, and you, and you mentioned that you have to stay like fresh and up to date, right? So when you think about staying fresh and up to date, what is something that's happening in um, English language development education that's really inspiring to you? Like what is exciting to you right now? In terms of English language development, I, you know, again, I keep going back to this um, NCL work that's being done to really yeah. uplift the science of reading because that's such a hum huge movement that's happening right now. Um, and if that voice wasn't there to really bring us back to reality in terms of our English learners and what needs to be done, unfortunately, they might be in classrooms where their needs aren't being met. And so that's exciting to me. Um to ensure that we're, we're still out there. We're trying to get that message across and, and hopefully um, it'll be in every classroom before you know it. Okay. And then what really worries you? Like what's something that you're watching happen and you're like, Ooh, I don't, I don't know. Like we got, we got to get in front of this or we've got to do something. What worries you? So I think just, uh, you know, and I'll say it, right. This whole like notion of banning books, uh, the critical race theory, et cetera. Like here we fought so hard to get children's voices, their families experiences being represented in the classroom. And for someone to come in and say, mm, actually that doesn't meet our criteria. 
that worries me significantly to see like how far we've come and how quickly things can disappear or, or be taken off our plates um, if we're not there to, to stop that from happening. I think that's the line I'm going to walk away with from this is it's hard to see how far we've come and how quickly it can be taken away. I think, I think you've totally hit it on the head, not just in like English language development, but everything in education, right? We make these huge strides and then it's swept under from underneath us and, and we're left with teachers who are holding it in their hands, right? Um, I always tell the story that I was very lucky that those years that I taught kindergarten, I taught with a woman named Miss S who really believed in phonics education and and, and thematic units. <laughs> and, and she taught me um, because I don't know where I would, if I would have been where I, where I was as a teacher without her because it wasn't being taught in my district. Um, and so I got really lucky on that. So again, it's just teachers who are left kind of holding on to what they know is good when, when things are swinging and changing all of the time. So I appreciate you saying that. Um, we're running low on time and this has been an amazing conversation with so many good things for me to go look up and think about. But um, I'm gonna ask you five questions that we ask every guest if that's okay with you. Um, so here we go. So the first thing is, uh, the, the, the show is called more than a test at Amira. We call it more than a test because we believe we are like the next generation of assessment in some ways. And that instead of thinking about where kids are as readers, uh, three times a year on benchmark assessments, we show you where they are every single day. Um, and so my question to you is when you heard more than a test, what did you think of? Yeah, when I heard that, so I love what what your um, version stands for, but I, when I heard it, honestly, I thought back to the classroom when I was teaching and how I had to assess my kids in English, and then I was getting told, like, your kids aren't progressing, but I was teaching in Spanish, and so this um, inaccuracy in terms of, like, who they actually were, the growth that they were making wasn't represented. And so really looking at more than just a test, getting to know our kids, their families, their experiences, their assets that they bring to the classroom. That's what I initially thought of when um, I saw your name. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. Um, and I love that personal story. Okay. So the next one is a literary moment that means something to you. And what we mean by that is like a time in your life when you were with a book that like changed who you are or that you go back to as a happy place, something like that. Yeah, it was my first year in college. I remember um, walking in the student store, saw a book on the shelf and kept walking and then actually returned. And the title was Cantora by Sylvia Lopez Medina. And I was reflecting on this because I knew you were going to ask me the question. But um, to me, honestly, I think that was the first time that there were characters in the story that I could relate to. So here it was um, first year in college. And for that to be the first incident, I, I remember crying on my in my bedroom on my dorm, um, just thinking and making connections to the storyline. So it was a powerful moment for me. That is really powerful. I love that. Um, okay, I know we've talked mostly about literacy, but a piece of technology that you love. Yeah, um, so I think just... Again, working with um, schools where sometimes we have teachers that don't necessarily speak the language of their families, all these um, wonderful resources that are now available that translate for you and uh, enable you to connect with families. Um, so all those wonderful apps, the chat GPT also, who that's um, allowing just for this communication to happen more fluidly between um, teachers who may not speak the languages represented in their classrooms is, is wonderful. That's really awesome. I think sometimes teachers are afraid of it not being perfect, but like your parents appreciate it so much. They don't need yeah. your perfect Arabic, but they need you to try yeah. a little bit. So I think Absolutely. that's great. Absolutely. Thank you for mentioning that. Um, I really appreciate it. Okay. I'm sure there are lots of people who, again, heard that ripple effect and they're like, I want, I want to change more lives. I want to help more, you know, teachers or students who want to be teachers. What is one piece of advice that you would give someone who hears your story and would love to do something similar? 
Um, I think just take the risk, right? Like there's this safety net in terms of staying in one place the entire time. And, um, you know, which if that is your goal, then absolutely. Um, but if opportunities exist that, you know, interest you a little bit, don't say no, even if you don't necessarily feel quite, you know, at that confidence level that you would want to be, take that risk. And then, uh, you know, you'll, you'll be amazed at the doors that open up once you do that. It's really awesome. I love that. And I, I love that you frame it as a risk because I know for you, it was kind of the way you first said it, it was just like, oh, this is just what I was going to do. But I think I think that acknowledging that it is a risk to just leave the classroom or something is, is something powerful. All right. Last one. One book everyone should read. Uh, I think another one that really changed my um, just view and outlook on uh, education was um, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire, which I think is very relevant still um, today. So definitely a book to check out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for being a part of our conversation. Um, as you said from the very beginning, we can't ever stop forget stop remembering that you know these students who are developing as English language learners um, have such amazing gift in their home language and that everything we should do in our classroom should consider them. So thank you so much for spending time and having that conversation with us. Thank you, Laura, for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the More Than a Test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader, and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week, and thanks for joining.